Bible, I want to ask you to turn to John chapter 2 with me. Stephen and I look for ways to set up each week from the opening video to what we use from our sermons. And this one was just perfect to set up what is probably one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Maybe even one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. Definitely one of the most underpreached passages of the Bible. And if you are new, I've been going through the Gospel of John, kind of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are almost like first century biographies about Jesus. But they're not your typical biography. When you and I think of biographies, we think of somebody that writes and they talk about a person's birth and their lineage and heritage and kind of walk through their life and then they kind of tell you what they accomplished and so on and so forth. Whereas the Gospels come at Jesus from different angles and ways and there's large swaths of His life not even talked about. You often read about His birth and then you go right to adulthood. Uh, diff different things. And the Gospel of John focuses almost exclusively on His adulthood and almost particularly on His interactions with human beings. And that's why I've said that this, past, this series for me is really the Gospel of John is about a series of conversations with Christ. Now this morning, for lack of wanting to give you a big idea, the title of my sermon, as you see it in your outline, in your back of your bulletin, is When the Lamb Becomes the Lion. Because this passage is like that. But I want to first Marinate your mind a little bit as we get to this. I want to get you thinking critically because you live in a critical world. And I don't want to pretend like we don't. Christianity is not all sewn up with a nice little bow and, and you just go believe these five, six things and life is all peachy. Let's wrestle with what I think is the most fundamental question for us to wrestle with, which is this. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Because how you answer that question will determine an awful lot. In fact, you could even say, is that an important question to ask? Some would say it's the most important question to ask, and I've got to be honest, I'd be one of them. I really believe if you wrestle with this question and you come to a definitive answer, it changes your life. Now, some would say it's a stupid question to ask. They laugh at you. Others simply don't care to ask it. They don't want to be bothered with it. But if you must deal with the question, who is Jesus? What are you left with? Before I can even get to this passage, because it's going to wig you out a little bit, you've got to realize that throughout history, mankind has dealt with or wrestled with the idea of God. A higher power, a greater being, whatever. From the flippancy of the big man upstairs to the idea of one almighty, holy God. But imagine what it does to human mind and human thinking when a human being claims to be God. What that does with your psychosis. What about a human being who not only claims to be God, but walks around acting like God or claiming Godship stuff? The Scottish Christian preacher, he was nicknamed Rabbi John Duncan, formulated what he called the trilemma. And I love this. He basically boiled it down to this. Christ either, number one, deceived mankind by conscious fraud. 
In other words, he was the best of con artists. Or number two, he himself was deluded and self-deceived. In other words, he was crazy. Or three, he was divine. Those are really your only three options. There is no getting out of this trilemma, so to speak. In fact, the old Chinese preacher, Watchman Nee, put it like this. First, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a liar. Or third, if he is neither of these, then he must be God. He goes on to say you can only choose one of the three possibilities. If you do not believe that he is God, you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot take him for either of the two, you have to take him for a liar. There is no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he is a lunatic or a liar. If he is neither, he must be the Son of God. Now these men said this in the very early 1990s or 1900s. But then there came along a gentleman that many of you in this room have heard, heard of, maybe you have watched his movies, because C.S. Lewis is probably most famous and known for wrestling with the question of who is Jesus. He read, what, I'm going to read what he spoke in 1942, and he wrote it in a famous book called Mere Christianity in 1952, a book I would really encourage you to read. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish, really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. So Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he's a pouched egg. Yeah, you can laugh, because that's funny. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and claim him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Lewis finishes, he says, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the few that he was and is God. Now just to show you why this is so important to me, and I believe it's the most important question you can ask, let me prove to you how much this is a burning issue in March of 2017. Yesterday, as I looked at CNN, the headline said, Decoding Jesus, Separating Man from Myth. In which this article highlighted those who would like you to believe that Jesus didn't even exist, let alone be the Son of God. And what is ironic is that in the article, it is men like Bart Ehrman and others, an avid denier of the reliability of the Bible, he actually speaks out against this new movement to tell us, in fact, that Jesus did exist. This article wants you to entertain that Jesus is simply a legend made up in the spirit of other pagan deities. 
If you know anything about history, the Jesus seminars of the 1980s and 90s and even the more modern Jesus project of 2008 and 2009 would back this up when one of their men said, Jesus was a cynic-like Jewish charismatic peasant whose teaching was witty, clever, and countercultural, but not ecclesiological and certainly not focused on himself. All portrayals of Jesus of a messianic, sacrificial, redemptive, or, uh, or the ecclesiological nature of the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament are the products of later church theology which grew up around the figure of this Mediterranean cynic-like teacher and turned him into a cult figure. This is what's being propagated today. But once again, C.S. Lewis provides some pretty acute insight and he writes this in 1950. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. Those were the three reactions you get to Jesus of Nazareth. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. He goes on to rebut the whole legend idea with this. This is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to that nation, nation which of all others was most convinced that there was only one God. That there could not possibly be another. So he says, it is very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers, even in the, of the New Testament writers, embraced the doctrine at all easily. In other words, they weren't suckers. But what about the so-called disciples of Jesus making more of Jesus than it was intended? You see, this was the assumption of my Jewish friend in Israel. I've been able to go to Israel many, many times, and each time, one of them, my, my second last time there, my third time there, uh, a guy named Reuven Solomon was my Jewish tour guide, and we got very, very close. I'm still close to Reuven. We exchanged pleasantries at Christmas and all these types of things, and one day we were walking along as our group was touring, and I had seen these things, so I stepped close to him, and I said, Reuven, what do you think of it all? What do you think of all these so-called Christians coming over to Israel, traipsing all around the country, and you've seen it all and heard it all, no doubt. And he looked at me and he said, Steve, look, I think Jesus was an awesome guy whose disciples just made too much of him. That's what he said. But again, Lewis would point out, now as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at the time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic dialogues, there is no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel, which is where we are. There is nothing even in modern literature until about a hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. So the idea that this was just a bunch of guys who created an early Superman is not true. And so I want you to think through that as we look at this passage because I promise you this is going to likely make you uncomfortable. It's one that's not highlighted much. 
It's often watered down and kind of spoken away. John MacArthur aptly sums it up when I'm going to try to get us all to start on our view when he says, the only view that adequately explains Jesus' perfect life, his profound teaching, his sacrificial death, and his miraculous resurrection is the biblical one. Namely, that Jesus came as God incarnate, which means God in the flesh. All other views utterly collapse under examination. The Apostle John walked with Jesus from the outset of his earthly ministry. He was a first-hand witness of his miracles, heard his teaching, observed his life from an intimate vantage point shared only by Peter and James. And when he wrote, he wrote his gospel so that his readers would understand Jesus' true identity as this, God the Son in human flesh. Now if you remember last week, we looked and we saw the Lamb of God bring joy unspeakable to the wedding of Cana. He displayed himself and he gave that miraculous object lesson to the whole wedding party of why he'd come. Remember, I have come to give them abundant life, eternal life, and that life would be grounded in the joy of a right relationship with God, a relationship that can never be broken and will never run dry. But in our passage today of John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, we're going to see a much different Jesus. In this passage, Jesus was authoritarian, even violent. He was rebuking, challenging. He was in your face. You're going to see him strike out and turn over tables, run men out of the temple and demand that others be taken away. You'll also see Jesus challenged while being feared. You'll discover others who were drawn to him, like this woman that I showed you in this video. You're going to see that there's freedom in the power of Jesus. You'll see the purpose even in his wrath. You'll discover and see rescue in the demands that he makes. You see, these people saw the Lamb of God in the Lion of Judah. So let's read our passage and give you some background to why I set it up the way I did. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. John the Apostle tells us, and after this, that's after the wedding of Cana, he's created upwards to 180 gallons of wine out of the purification pot water, remember? And so it was after this, he went down to Capernaum, which would become kind of Jesus' home base. And he was there with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now this is telling, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and if you read the Gospel of John, you'll realize that Jesus' public ministry encompassed three Passovers. And this is the first one. So this is the first one. He goes through three Passovers before Calvary. Okay? This is the first one. And Jesus, notice it says, went up to Jerusalem, because that's what you did. Jerusalem's very high in its elevation. Almost the rest of Israel is lower than the, where the city is. And so everybody kind of traveled up to Jerusalem. Okay? And so that's why it says that. And in the temple, verse 14, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. But notice the change. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Catch the, the sarcasm and, the, and the, the doubt in there. It was almost like liar, liar, pants on fire. Notice it. But he, verse 21, was speaking about the temple of his body. Now notice how John finishes this sign, this second sign. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Now notice, and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. And may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Now today, when we've just had one of the most powerful storms we've ever seen and encountered, many of you have seen Twitter feeds or Facebook videos or you've experienced yourself what it means to go up against something you can't control. My next door neighbor's shed literally disintegrated and blew all around our neighborhood. And since we had no power and no television, my entire family was fascinated to sit at our kitchen table and watch two dudes try and collect it. It was like live entertainment. And try as they might, these two strapping men would go grab pieces of things and when that wind gusted, it did not matter how strong they felt they were, they went wherever the wind blew them. And some of you experienced that yesterday. We're going to look today at the all-powerful Jesus but the all-powerful Jesus showing us His love. Now notice the contrast. So this time by showing and displaying His holiness and His almighty power and His undaunted purpose. And if you look closely, you'll see that even in those who question, those who come to Him and doubt, or those who reject Him, those who would eventually plan and conspire His death, even those He has made a whip, He's embarrassed them, He's overturned tables, He's lashed that whip, He's demanded things, even then when they come to Him, they dare not move against Him unless He gives Himself over as God's plan of redemption. Now I need you to hear me, Calvary. And for those of you that are visiting today, listen closely. You must confess and repent to the Lion of Judah in order to be saved by the Lamb of God. You must trust in the Lamb of God if you're going to pray and go before the Lion of Judah. You've got to fear and worship the Lion of Judah so you'll be thankful for the Lamb of God. You've got to find shelter in the cleft of the rock, in the shadow of the wings of the Lion of Judah for, to wash, for you to wash yourself clean in the blood of the Lamb. So very quickly this morning, four things. Number one, in verse 12 through 14, when religion goes commercial, 
God's not glorified. Listen to me. When religion goes commercial, God's not glorified. I have quoted this before. Richard Halverson might well have summed up our passage best in relationship to the 21st century church of Canada and the United States when he said this, In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Then it moved to Europe where it became a culture. And finally, it went to America, and it became a business. And that is true. To appreciate this event I've read for you in John chapter 2, you've got to try and associate how important the Passover was to Israel. You've got to try and do this. You've got to feel the anticipation, the festivity of it, the celebration, the story, the preparation. And likely the only thing we've got to compare to it is to think of the build up to Christmas. As you know, right, Christmas gets earlier and earlier in the year every year. But the bottom line, I know in our house, come I think it's like October 1st or something like that. No, November 1st. November 12th. Debbie is correcting me now. November the 12th. I think it's the day after Remembrance Day. All things Christmas are fair game. Christmas music, Christmas decorations, everything. She books my calendar <laughs> when i got to put up the Christmas lights, everything. And, and thus begins the six weeks of Christmas. This was... Israel's Christmas, the Passover, about a month in advance, they would start preparing. Jerusalem would start being cleaned. Tombs and buildings were whitewashed, not only to be clean, but literally to sparkle as thousands, hundreds of thousands from all over Israel and even the Roman Empire would make the journey to Jerusalem. They would do this, the songs, Psalms of Ascent, from I think it's Psalm 110 all the way up to 130 odd, were, were the hymn book of, this, of the, the, the pilgrims as they traveled to Jerusalem. And that's why verse 12 is the marker for us in our passage. Were you to look back and tell the story? Remember, we have the famous book, Twas the Night Before Christmas. But you see, for the Jews, it was Twas the Night Before Deliverance. Because after the ten plagues of Egypt, finally this last plague where the firstborn of those were killed, and finally Israel, after 430 years of slavery, are set free to become a nation. And this celebrated God's protection and His deliverance. It was a time to be reminded of what God did, what God promised. It was a living object lesson of God's provision for sin to be forgiven and dealt with. It was a time for you and your family to come before God in the one place He dwelt on the planet. You traveled and went to the temple. And you can read all about this in Exodus and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And so here comes Jesus with his disciples and his family. It's a happy time. It's an anticipated time. Jerusalem, they tell us, would swell to 2.5 million souls during Passover. The Temple Mount with its outer court and Solomon's colonnade, they said could hold up to 2 million at a time. And do we have that picture that we can show everybody? I want you to see this if, you can, if we can have it to put up. This was the Temple Mount. This picture is actually called the Jerusalem model, which is in Israel today. 
But that outer court and all those pillars you see out there, the temples in the middle, all of that open area, they say could hold two million people. And they would all gather there. But when Jesus enters his supposed glorious and sacred temple, expecting to find a sober but joyous gathering of God's chosen people who gathered to sacrifice, coming to teach the next generation, coming to confess and to admit, admit their helplessness and their need, coming to anticipate the promise of a coming Messiah. Instead, he found the Avalon Mall. That's what he found. Notice in our passage, instead of making God accessible, religion had set up shop. In fact, the high priest at this time was a guy by the name of Annas. And we're told through antiquity that he actually sold franchises to people along those colonnades in there. And that's where you could buy sacrificial animals. And that's where you could exchange your money. And in fact, he was so infamous for his money grubbery that in the first century, they called the Temple Mount during Passover the Bazaars of Annas. That's what it was nicknamed somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Notice again, in our passage, we're told there were those who sold animals for sacrifice and then the money changers. And the reason for this is only Jewish money was accepted on the temple because all foreign money had images of pagan deities. And so therefore you had to exchange it and get true Jewish money. And of course, this was done at a great profit. You had to buy animals that could pass inspection. And now even this was an enterprise because unless your animal was approved, you'd be forced to buy one that was approved. In fact, those who trained in this, they said they trained for 18 months so they could just glance and know if you had a clean animal. And the irony of it was they said your animal would be clean today but could be unclean tomorrow. I mean, it was a full-on telemarketing commercial outfit. It was conning them. And of course, all this was expensive. Remember what Our Lady said in the video? She couldn't afford a lamb. All she could do was maybe go and get a pigeon. Do you know that the exchange rate and how they did this was so exorbitant? By the time that you get to the first century when Jesus walks in here, to get a pigeon, once you've done all your exchange, cost you the equivalent to two to four days' wages. To get a pigeon. So when the Son of God, God in the flesh, comes into His temple, where His Shekinah glory had come and licked up the sacrifices of Solomon in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, instead of seeing worship, He sees religious business. He sees a circus formed, fixed with enterprises and rites and rituals that blocked access. Outward traditions that actually created social segregation where the rich made themselves richer and felt self-righteous and the poor and the broken and the needy and those willing to admit their need were pushed down. Are you getting the picture yet? Again, John MacArthur writes, What had begun as a service to the worshipers had under the corrupt ruler of the chief priests degenerated into exploitation and usury. Religion had become external, crass, materialistic. The temple of God had become a robber's den. Now, before we go, in our language, all postal, 
And we start to feel good about ourselves and our commitment to Christ. And you're all going like, yeah, Steve, get mad. Tell us how bad these guys were. We just came to church right after a big storm. So for just 30 seconds or so, why don't you be honest about what your thought process has been since you've been here? What's your thought process when you're having your devotions or when you go to life group? Is your mind and heart a mall of activity or does it focus on Christ? Is your mind and heart like the downtown business district? Are you planning your work week even right now while you're wondering how long I'm going to preach? Are you thinking of lunch? Going, where will we eat? I wonder what's open. How big the lines will be? Are you planning your attack against someone you don't like at work this week already? While you're sitting here at church, you're already figuring out your arguments with people for this coming week. Are you worrying about your bank account? Already are some of you deciding that you're going to cheat on your spouse or ignore your kids? Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 14, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Catch the irony of that. Solomon says, I'm on the brink of utter ruin when I'm at church. Is it possible that for some of us here today, we're so busy doing church, we've missed the purpose altogether of what, or what's worse, missed God's glory, Jesus' presence, and the Spirit's power. You see, sometimes I get a bit nervous, and maybe I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here because I'm a Reformed Baptist, but i got to tell you something. i got a lot of Pentecostal that runs through these veins. At the very least, I'm a Bapticostal. And I really believe that the utter Achilles heel of Baptist is we have subverted the role of the Holy Spirit. We've minimized his role. And A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of God, says this, With our loss of the sense of the majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. Folks like, was it Larry the Cable Guy? I don't care who you are, that's, that's just true. That's just true. You see, all of church, from facilities to ministries, even missions, can become about us. We can structure ourselves and everything we do while good says, look at us. It becomes a point of being proud of what we've done for God than being humbled that God would save us and use us and the longing to always want God's glory to be on more display than our accomplishments. For those of you that have been a part of this church since 1993, for those of you that have come here and been a part of churches and you've done great, are you more concerned about the glory of God than giving your resume of what you've done for God? P. 
People from all over Israel are coming to Jerusalem to actually see and meet with God. And the very place that represented Him, He was least accessible. I said that the Temple Mount had become like the Avalon Mall. This made me laugh because history repeats itself. I remember growing up, my dad would, would, would want to drop me off, or so I would want to go to the mall, and my dad would drop me off. And uh, I would bug him and pastor him and say, Dad, just bring me to the mall. I, I've got money and I want to go to the mall. And that was back in the day when the food court was actually called the intermission. And it was all dark and, and you could go and it was like a buffet of food. And, and I just wanted to go. And my dad would finally acquiesce and say, Okay, Steve, let's go to the Babylon Mall. <laughs> and even in modern history, my dad was able to recognize what the mall had become. How many people go to the mall and it's actually their temple? Because it's where they can buy and they can show off their fashion and they can announce where their stature is on the social ladder of acceptance. So what is Jesus' reaction to this farce and this mockery, this facade of worship? You might be, and I believe are meant to be shocked by what comes next because John tells us, that in this version, this version of Jesus we don't like or consider much, right? Because number two, when religion points away from God, Jesus always acts. And so what does Jesus do in our passage? It says he makes a whip of these cords. He likely grabs a handful of cords that were used to bring these sheep and oxen and lambs all around. And he braids them and he creates a whip. An actual whip. And he springs into action and it's not the action we'd normally see or read about. This is not meek and mild Jesus. Jesus' display of force would have immediately created pandemonium in the temple court where potentially hundreds of thousands of people and he's frantically chasing beasts and clashing his whip and animals are running aimlessly in all directions and startled money changers. Imagine what you would do if I just flicked this over and flicked over the communion table. I thought about it. I thought about doing it just to freak everybody out. What would be the shock and awe if you went to a Good Friday service or an Easter Sunday service and instead of all the ohms and all, and, the, and all that, just someone just got to whip out and start a whack, whoosh, and get, get everybody out of here. Like You'd all be like, what the heck? Imagine what it would be like if you're all your money and I'm just flicking it everywhere. Have you seen this happen? I got to see this once in, a, in an airport. There was a bank at the airport and the Brinks guys were there. And I don't know how it happened or why it happened, but the poor fellow is going along and all the other guys with the guns. And somehow Buddy trips and falls and money goes everywhere. And it was immediate pandemonium. Because everybody's looking and, every, and all the guys with the guns and they've got the guns out and everybody's freaking out. And everyone wants to help, but everyone's afraid to pick up even a quarter for Freyr of, of getting fired on. Kent Hughes puts it like this. He says, The following verses only give a glimpse of the drama that occurred. Jesus reached down, picked up some cords, knots them together, and he begins to cleanse the temple. One commentator said he must have appeared to be seven feet tall as his whip began to fly and tables crashed and money jangled across the floor as our Lord drove the money changers, the sellers, and the inspectors out of the temple. And Jesus' words were, Get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And that's where I get my title. The lamb is now the lion. 
In my imagination, I see Jesus heaving silhouette in the portico of the temple is cleared and is indignant and his anger and he's burning white hot holy anger. MacArthur says apparently the uproar he created was only contained enough not to alert the Roman garrison in the fortress Antonia. Watching, he surmises that maybe the Romans have found some satisfaction in this assault on the temple system and its leaders who gave them much grief. But have you ever wondered what's the difference between Jesus the Lamb and Jesus the Lion? Let me take you through a quick little narrative of the New Testament. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, when Jesus heals someone, but it's on the Sabbath, and so people question His love and mercy, He responds in anger and He says, Who are you to tell me, the Lord of the Sabbath, what to do? In Luke chapter 13, verse 32, when Herod, that pagan half-breed of a king, rejects Jesus completely, Jesus sends back his witnesses and he goes, tell that fox that I'm coming. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, when Peter, the Christian who wanted his will and not God's, looked at his right-hand men and said, get behind me, Satan. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27 and 33, when the religious folks who felt they were all right, when the religious people thought, I'm good enough, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough, and I'm definitely better than them, the danger of religion is it's always comparative righteousness. Now profoundly listen to these words that Jesus says to him. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Steve, it's an exclamation point. For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful and within are full of dead people's bones. Now you know the context of this because this is Passover. This is what he's saying. They've been preparing and they've literally whitewashed the tombs to make Jerusalem sparkle. And Jesus says, look at these things. Oh, they're outwardly beautiful, but they're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And he says this to the group of people who felt, we're clean. He says this to the group who says, come to the temple and we'll help you unclean people become clean. And then he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Now I can't believe this sentence. For any of you that are tempted by universalism or you don't think hell was real to Jesus, he says, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How do you like them apples from meek and mild Jesus? But think of how different his words are in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, for I am meek, and I'm lonely, lowly. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn of me. What about the woman with the issue of blood who touches the hem of Jesus' garment? And when everybody's freaking out, he turns to her and says, I haven't found faith like that in all of Israel. Or the woman who asked for healing when he said, listen, I haven't come to the Gentiles, I came to God's people. And he says, I can't feed the dogs, I'm here for the children. And she says, yeah, but even the dogs get the, get the crumbs. And Jesus says again, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. What about the Samaritan woman we're going to learn about in chapter 4 of John? 
Or the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. What about the publican in the temple that wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What about the thief on the cross who said, if you just remember me? What version of Jesus did they get? I forgive you. I love you. I'll feed you or give you drink. I'll protect you. But but the self-righteous, the one who wants to argue with God, the one who wants to pit himself as an adversary or an equal, the one who says, okay, God, you owe me explanations. The one who went, who went, where God, you're like a tag on. Jesus, I like you as long as you tag on. You fit in my wallet. I whip you out when I need you. Other than that, know your place in my wallet. Oh, that's when you get the whip. That's when the tables of your life get turned upside down. But what if, what if I told you that Jesus shows us all here today as much of his godness in this scene as he did at the wedding of Cana? What if whiplashing, table-turning Jesus is the very same Jesus that will one day hang on a cross? Again, Kent Hughes makes this amazing statement. I hope it's on the screen. Love presupposes hatred. If you write stuff down, write that down. I want you to wrestle with that this week. Love presupposes hatred. If you love the downtrodden, do you not hate what makes people downtrodden? What drove William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln? Was it not hatred of the segregation and the demeaning of other human beings simply because of the color of their skin? What drove the Wesleys or Spurgeon to stand up for those? What drove William Booth to start an entire movement that would simply reach out to the addicts and derelicts of his world? If it wasn't the hatred of what alcohol and other things would do to chew up human beings and spit them out. Where is the righteous indignation of those of us who say, I love Jesus. Well, if you love Jesus, that must mean you hate something. Hughes goes on to say this. In fact, you can tell as much about a person by his or her hatreds as by his or her loves. Listen to David in Psalm 119 or Psalm 139 when he says, I have hated sin with a perfect hatred. And David talks much of what God hates, and it must have been passed on to his son Solomon, because in Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon said, These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. What do you do with those things? When God himself says, I hate this. I hate haughty eyes and men that shed each other's blood. And I hate when your imagination is wicked because he's holy. Soren Kierkegaard said this, the human race in the course of time has taken the liberty of softening and softening Christianity till until at last we have contrived to make it exactly the opposite of what it is in the New Testament. No, I see, Jesus was a lion here. Again, one commentator says, to glorify God was the very purpose of the temple. Therefore, the sin of the money changers and the religious authorities lay in the fact that while they loudly proclaimed the holiness and otherness of God, they denied it in practice. 
Our Lord's whip opposes anything that distracts from the communication of God's glory, especially in worship. Now, I'm out of time. So, these are previews of coming attractions. You come back next week and I'll finish this sermon. Because the next two points will really mess with your mind. But I want you to realize that religion, when it goes commercial, is evil. And I want you to realize that when religion goes commercial and denies God's glory, Jesus always acts. But I want you to remember as well as we clue up here, the woman who said she witnessed all this lion-like behavior of God. And what did she say? It gave me hope. It actually meant something. Jesus had come to set us free. And so as we finish, I want to give you a couple of just ideas here. So church, as you go, do your words about God match up to your life for God? In other words... Does your theology work itself out in practice? You see, this here should prove to you, God's not impressed by how nice you look at church and how well we make our buildings and how well we polish our ministries and how well we produce wonderful little books and bulletins and brochures and all these types of things if the reality is we don't love each other and we don't bear with one another and we don't do life together and we travel through community together and we hold each other accountable and we we come to each other and we, we have a transformed life. Richard Phillips puts it like this, what we do in worship reveals what we think about God. Now listen to me. A church that worships through dry and joyless ritual shows that it believes in an absent God. You and I have been a part of those services, haven't we? You've been there where it's all the bells and smells and there's lots of pomp and circumstance and all you're thinking is like, when the heck is this over? Because this has a lot of fanfare, but I don't think God makes a hill of beans a difference. But what about this? A church that stirs up emotional enthusiasm and fills the worship service with entertainment. What does that say? It says that's a church that believes in a weak God who needs our spiritual help. Do you really think you and I need to make God more attractive? Really? Just give people God. Don't sales pitch God. What about this? A church focused on money reveals a God who is unable to meet our needs. Whereas a church that exalts its own celebrities shows its blindness to the glories of God. But what happens when a church worships with humility? Where everyone is welcome and wanted and where we fight to see everyone be a part of worship. What does it show when we humbly confess our sins and need to learn from God's Word? What does it say when we commit ourselves to prayer and reading God's Word together and at home? Here's what it says. We declare that God is worthy and great, that we follow a holy but forgiving God, that we believe God has indeed revealed Himself through His Word and that it's sufficient for us to follow and trust Him today. And that His Word saves and it leads us. We proclaim that God matters more than the world's approval. You see, 
as you saw in the passage, do you and I have a zeal for being the children of God? And then I'll end with this. My third application for the guys on the PowerPoint. It's do you know Jesus as both lamb and lion? I want you to answer that question this week. Remember the video of the lady? She, she knew the lion and the lamb. She understood that Jesus was God and creator and Lord and king and almighty. But she also knew him as savior and Messiah and redeemer. She saw him as her propitiation. That means he took her place. You see, on the cross, justice and mercy collide at Calvary. The holiness of God is satisfied in the perfection of Jesus. So the mercy and grace of Jesus can be justly offered by God to us as sinners. But that salvation brings us into a relationship and it gives us hope and even motivation to trust and live how God wants us to live. So don't play games. And I hope that every one of you will sit here this morning and go, Steve, I am absolutely helpless. <laughs> because the song we're going to close with is called Mighty to Save. Which means when you're helpless and you come to Jesus, you never have to be hopeless. Because the gospel, Jesus cleansed the temple. And in our prayers of confession, we quoted 1 John chapter 4 and 5. But remember verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Here's my question. Has the temple of your heart been cleansed by Jesus? Has your temple become the Avalon Mall? And needs to be cleansed. If your answer is yes, the good news is he's mighty to save. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity just to marinate in your word for a while. I pray for the friends, the visitors, those that are here for the first time, those that are hurting, those that are searching. Father, with love and with the whip of love, with the whip and the love of confrontation, turn over the money tables in our hearts for those of us that are filled with righteous, that is self-righteousness. Help us to stop playing games. Help us to stop thinking we're running and hiding from God or compartmentalizing our lives or that we think we can bargain and we can manipulate or we can spin our lives so that it all makes sense. Oh God, May anyone and everyone here feel safe to ask questions. Safe to go to someone and say, would you pray with me or for me? Safe to go home and read this and say, Lord, what part of my life do you need to cleanse and turn over? Lord, help people meet both the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. And help us, Lord, to come back next week and hear. Hear how when we are confronted by the Lion of Judah, we will react. And yet when we submit to the line of Judah, life makes perfect sense. God, do not allow Satan to steal the seeds of the gospel that have been thrown out into the hearts of these men and women, including my own. And give us voices now to sing your praise as we head out into another week. In Jesus' name, and all God's people say, Amen. Amen.